have your Bibles, open up with me to 1 John, in the book of 1 John, and we're going to be kicking off a new series that we've been kicking, that we've been talking about, um, if, if we were known by our love, if we were known by our love. So we're going to be walking basically through the book of 1 John. We're going to be taking the next nine weeks and just walking through um, 1 John. So if you're not currently studying the scriptures um, and spending time with the Lord, I would invite you to come in the study journey with us in the book of 1 John um, as a church family. Um, and as you're getting there, I just really want to just kind of frame it a little bit because from a human perspective, the Christian church, I really believe, is at a very vulnerable place right now, specifically right now in America. Now, I recognize and I know based on Matthew chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So we know that we're in good hands and God will and is and will be able to overcome any and every hurdle that has been placed in us. But we must um, ask ourselves some not diagnostic questions about just kind of where we are. You know, and just like the early church in the first century, there were things that, Christ, or that Paul had to write, whether it's to the church of Corinth or to the church of Ephesus or, um, or Peter would write that, you know, that there were specific things and specific issues that we needed to address, that we needed to, to, to talk about. And, you know, and it was for many different reasons. And so today we're going to be looking at, and really for the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at the idea of um, if we were to be known by our love, just kind of begin to wish and dream. And the reason why is because whether you are a pastor um, across the country or whether you are in the congregation, I was talking to one pastor um, the other day and he basically has been pastoring for over, for almost 40 years. And basically he, he said that, you know, he told me that these last four or five years have been the hardest to pastor a church in the history that he has been pastoring. And if we look at the statistics, many people are leaving the church at droves in terms of the congregations. You know, lots of people are going through currently reconstructing or deconstructing their faith. You know, and just the different realities that, that we are facing. And according to Barna a research, they, just, they basically have said since in the last 18 months, since the pandemic, basically 30% of the church is, is, has come back and is regathering. About 30% of the church says, well, I don't really know. I'm kind of, I'm still waiting. It's still not safe because of the pandemic. And another 33% of the church is basically saying, I don't know if I'm ever coming back to the church, you know, or I'm not coming back to that church. And they, they have changed their, con you know, their, their membership somewhere else. And a lot of this has happened because of the trauma that we've all have been experiencing over these last 18 months, you know. And really we have found and we have become experts on all the things that we are divided over. And we're really good at it. I listed out a couple of things that, that we're divided on. You know, we're, we're divided on who we vote for politically. We're divided on who we partner with, whether it's in a network or denominational. We're divided on the things that we ought to emphasize or not emphasize. Oftentimes, we're divided on the, you know, whether or not we believe in CRT or not. We're divided on whether we're woke or not. We're divided on our stands on racial tension, racial reconciliation. We're divided on social justice and whether or not we are to engage on that. We're divided on women in ministry. We're divided on whether or not to wear masks or not. We're divided on whether or not we, are, we ought to take vaccinations or not, right? We're divided on whether we march or not. We're divided on whether or not we storm the Capitol or not. Well, okay, we're not divided on that. I think we're clear <laughs> on that. But 
the reality is, is that the church, that we're divided on so many things and we don't have to go far, we don't have to do anything. All we can do is all put up our Twitter feeds right now, our Facebook posts, and we can see how divided the church is today. And so for us, it's really important for us to recognize that there's a couple of problems about this. You know, one of the reasons why I believe that the church is in trouble and we are so divided, one reason is that we we end up fighting far more for what we are against than what we're for. Like, we are known not by our love, we are known by what we are against. And we champion that. You know, and because we are championing what we are against more than what we're for, we, many of us have lost both the who and the what we are called to fight for. We've lost our way in so many ways. And I really believe that even though I've been, you know, we talk about the, the church, the global church, and, you know, talk about all the divisions that has taken place, that same division has been able to infiltrate and synchronize its way or into, the, into Blueprint Church, into our family. Now, our Blueprint, we've never basically have ever said that we are a perfect family. We just said we're family. And just like in any family, we know that we have ups and we have downs, we have strife, we have tension um, in any family. And I think families are committed to stand together in the midst of it, right? Because we have covenant. We're, we've been, we're bound by covenant. And so really, you know, the statement that we oftentimes say is that the church is not like family, but the church is family. And so if we're going to be family, I think it's no better book, there's no better message or better um, to go through to talk about the idea of the, instead of the casting a vision about all about what we're divided for, but casting a vision of both who we are for and what we are for. And the book of First John walks us through that. So we're going to take some time to just walk through that and really ask the question, what if? What if the church was known, not more for what it's against, but what if the church was known by our love? You know, and there's a couple of qualifiers before we get into the book that I need to under, that I need to, for us to be clear, that this is not a vision from Dahadi. This is not um, a vision that we, even as elders, have come together. Um, this is a vision from God, right? This idea of being known by our love is God's vision. And that's the first thing that we got to understand, that being known by our love is God's vision. Remember, if you remember a few weeks ago in John chapter 17, we talked about the high priestly prayer, and in the high priestly prayer, he um, focused in and he referred back to John chapter 13 and 34, where John basically was recapping of what took place in the upper room discourse. And in the upper room discourse, what we see is that he built the high priestly prayer, kind of pointing back to that time. Um, But also what we see in the book of 1 John is that he really builds a lot of the argument that comes on 1 John back to what Jesus' commands in the high priestly prayer. In that, basically, in the midst of division, in the midst of turmoil, Jesus comes out, he pulls out his towel, he begins to wash the feet of the disciples, and he makes this profound statement talking about what we are to be known for. In John 13, 34, it says this, a new command. I give to you a new command. And he says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you 
are my disciples. That this is the very essence, that our love for one another is both a sign for us to be connected with one another, but it is also a gospel witness. It's a tangible display of the gospel to a world that there's something supernatural going on in the church, that we are to be known by our love. And this is why this theme and throughout John, the Apostle John has, he captures this all over, all throughout, it's referred to many times, like 11 times through his gospel, we talk about being known for our love. We see that, we're gonna see it multiple times here in the book of 1 John. Because this message is so essential, you would think that we, or his disciples, would have gotten it. But oftentimes when we look at the disciples, oftentimes when we look at the church, what we end up finding, instead of being known by our love and fighting for unification, what what we find ourselves fighting for is division and being right. If we look at our marriages, what we find ourselves looking at is divisions and being right. If we find ourselves with our friend groups, right, oftentimes we are more characterized for fighting for our rights than fighting for, to be known for our love for one another. So being known by our love is God's vision for the, his church. He says the gospel has torn down the dividing wall, bringing us together. But not only is it God's vision, it's also God's litmus test. Being known by our love is God's litmus test. He says this, you, if If you are known by our love, it's when there, if you love one another, it says this, that we will know that we are his disciples. You see, what we got to recognize is that that word if is a a statement that we see all throughout the New Testament. That word if, um, for some of us scholarly, that basically means it it comes from a third class condition or first class condition. What do I mean by that? The first class condition is basically it makes a statement but it's not making a statement kind of like uh, one, uh, whether or not it's going to be true or not. A first-class condition says, is basically it answers the question. It says, if we are to be known, but it's not just saying if we are to be known by love, but it's supposed to ultimately say, if, but since we know that we are, act this way. So it's like a, a good translation to translate that is saying, since we ought to be known by our love. Because oftentimes what we will see is the Bible basically is, you know, goes through and he proclaims the gospel message. He proclaims the person and work of Christ and he lands there and he says, now, if this is true, then there is a therefore. And we talked about a little bit about there. And that's right there is the first class condition. We see this example in Philippians chapter 2. One and two, after Paul talks about the division that's taking place in the church. And he says, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, he says that I must decrease so that he must increase. He understands his citizenship in the light of the controversy that's taking place in the church of Philippi. He reestablishes his firm foundation. But out of that, he comes and he makes this statement in chapter two. He says, if, right, if then... And since we know that is true, there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, if there is any affection and mercy, he goes on and says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So this idea is that if we are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, not only are we to be known by our love, but it is also the litmus test in which Jesus is the 
to, to, to characterize us, this the way that we ought to be known. Angie and I, we celebrated 20 years of marriage a year, um, a week ago, a couple weeks ago. Now, if I go in next week and I say, hey, Angie, I want a divorce, does she have the right to question that I've ever loved her? Absolutely. Why? Because what we're going to see is that love endures all things. Love conquers all things. There's something that is about love that is the very litmus test that is especially for those that are in Christ. That love conquers. Love endures. It does not mean that Angie and I won't have any more fights, any more bickering, but it will mean that we will be able to overcome. It is the litmus test. But also church, I want you guys to know this, is that being known for our love is Blueprint's hope. This is our desire. This is our hope. From the very beginning, we have always proclaimed and declared that this is our goal to be known by our love. I've told you oftentimes that we have three rules at the church. The first rule is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And the third one is to do whatever else you want to do. Because we recognize that the, that the commitment and the restrictions is in the first two. If we would commit ourselves to falling more in love with God and more in love with one another, all the jot and tittles would take care of itself. Jesus is the one who says this as well. In Matthew chapter 22 and 37, when a lawyer asked him, he says, what are the greatest of commandments? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And he says all of the other commandments hang on that love, on that. They hang on that. And so we recognize that Paul puts it this way. He tells us in um, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 5, he says, now the goal of everything that we teach is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, in a clear conscience, right? So everything that we do is aimed, is targeted at this idea that we are to be known by our love. But we have to understand that love is not easy, but love comes at a cost. That if you look back, and for some of us who um, have read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you look back in the old school saints, look back at the King James Version, it says, love is long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. Now, when we talk about love, we got to understand what love is and what love is not. Love is not just kind of this idea that we have bought into, that Cupid is going around and kind of shooting people in the butt. You know, and we begin to differentiate this idea that I'm in love, but I just don't love anymore. Right? No, it is not, but it talks about love. What love is, is love is a commitment. It's a commitment of my will and best interest. Oh, I'm sorry. Love is a commitment of your will and best interest, regardless of the cost. It's a commitment that we have. And that love that we see is a commitment that we see brought into the very essence of the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, and what we'll be looking at over these next nine weeks is, how do we navigate that love? This commandment to love one another, the struggle that we have to flesh it out. How do we, how are we to do that if we are to be known by our love for one another? 
You see, this epistle is written to a believing community that is dealing with the fallout, the fallout from the, the, the departure of some, the fallout from the tension from the outside of others, that this is what he is pressing into. And so John, the revelator, writes this book, the apostle writes this book to us, running to the tension. And here we are in 1 John chapter 1. And we're, today we're going to be just looking at the first four verses. Because the, the bottom line is, is that if we are going to be known by our love, today we're going to talk about our fellowship must be built on truth. If we are to be known by our love, our fellowship must be built by truth. Because anytime we talk about love, we kind of go into this kind of Unitarian, universalism, live and let live, kind of just like all people are kind of good. Like, that's not what we're talking about. And that's really what we, what the book starts off with. He says, like, there, like if we're going to be known by our love, then we first must establish kind of what our love centers around. So we're not going to be passing out coexist stickers when we leave. First John chapter one, let me reread the text. It says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and now, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and what we have heard and we also declare to you so that you may have you may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and his son jesus christ we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this idea of if we're going to be known by our love and if that love must be built on truth, that's what we're going to look at today. And so my first point that I want us to kind of consider is this, is that truth is built on the person and work of Christ, not the philosophies of man. Truth is built on the person and work of Christ, not the philosophies of of men. This truth that we are talking about is a truth that is meant to be experienced. It's a truth that was established that what we see from the beginning. When he says in the beginning was the word, basically we recognize that this is the truth that he's establishing. That he's establishing, he says, what was from the beginning? John, the revelator, is immediately, if you're, you know, in, in studying the scriptures, you would immediately go back to what John wrote in his gospel. That John was the same John who wrote this epistle, was the same John who wrote the, the gospel of John. And the gospel of John starts with the person and work of Jesus. He starts with the creation narrative. That if you remember in the creation narrative, it says, in the beginning right? You see, but John takes that creation narrative and he begins as the creation being the very essence of who Christ is. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, in the beginning was the Word, right? When, G when God says, let there be light, we, have, we see the Word of God at the very forefront. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and it says, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. And so he's establishing that Jesus is God, right? He goes on and he says this in verse two, 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. What we're going to see is a lot of parallels here that, that was built here in, John, in the Gospel of John. And then the epistle goes into kind of an explanation of what, what he is saying here. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through the book of uh, the epistle of First John. But he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were created through him. Nothing was created apart from him. He shone that his light, he allowed his light to shine in the darkness, so in the darkness could not comprehend. Right? But then as he goes on, he says, let me just be perfectly clear about what I'm talking about, because some of you may be confused about what I mean by the Word. Verse 14 of John chapter 1 says this, the word, the word that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. This is an explicit claim that Jesus, the person of Jesus is both God and man, which separates Christianity from all other religions, that he is God and he is man. That we, and this is the, part, the claim that we have. And in this, in who Christ is, we observe him. I want you to pay close attention to that. We observe his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, one of the things that we got to understand is that, but that God and man, he is the God man. We don't create who he is. We observe who he is. And we go to the scriptures to allow him, his revelation, to speak to us. And so we recognize the very essence of what's taking place. So John, with all this in the back, he says, what was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? The word. The word was from the beginning, and the word has been revealed. And so what he says is that he unpacks what he means about we observed him that he dwelt among us. And, he, and in this, he's building a sense of credibility. He's building a sense of authenticity here. He says, he says, and he says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we observed, and what we have touched with our hands. You see, right here, what we got to understand is that he said, like, how do we know they had the truth? How do we know that they weren't confused about it? And so what he's doing is that he's laying a sense of authenticity, that is experiential authenticity that we have when he comes. You see, because there was mo a lot of different people in that time that were basically coming in with human philosophies, right? There was a group called Doceticism. There was a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, basically, the Greek word for Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis. And that word gnosis simply means to have knowledge. And so what, what they do and what they've said is that they have a certain knowledge that supersedes even that of the apostles, right? That I've, that I've had a dream, that I've had a vision, 
right? And it's this vision and this dream that I had and I claim to have from God is the very essence of why you need to believe these gnosis, these Gnostics. And these Gnostics have started to cause dissension and division within the church. And so John comes in and says, listen, I know that there's people who are coming with a lot of human philosophies. I know there's people with a lot of thoughts about who Jesus is. I know there's a lot of people who are coming with a lot of different ideologies, and they may even be better speakers, more articulate, addressing it more specifically. But let me just kind of lay a foundation about the apostles, one who were sent by God. We have this understanding that we were with him. You saw us walking with him. You saw us talking to him. You saw us listening. You saw us shaking hands. You saw us praying together. What you saw, what we heard, what we have beheld, that same thing, we are now coming to you. We are sharing to you. It's sort of like if I were to tell you, my dad was Reginald Anthony Lewis Sr. And if for some reason all of us wanted to know about Reginald Anthony Lewis Sr., my question to you would be, if there was, I was up here and there was a couple of other people up here, and a couple of other people says, man, I've had some dreams and visions about Reginald Anthony Lewis Sr. that I need to share with you guys. And then, you know, and then I say, hey, Reginald Anthony Lewis Sr. was my dad. And he raised me all of my life. And I want to share some things about you. Whose witness would be more credible? My witness or their witness? My witness, why? Because I've experienced him. And so this is the very essence of what he builds this out, is that when we talk about this, is that, it, it, that this truth is built upon the person and work of Christ. This truth is built on the personal, personally encountering of his disciples. This truth is built on the embodiment of the message of the gospel. That this, is, this truth is built. So what, what does he say in here? He basically says what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched, right? And he says concerning the word of life. There, go, there it goes, the word of life. That this is the embodiment of a message. And what do we talk about? And he's not going in and going to talk, talk, specifically talk about his philosophies. He talks about Christ. How do I know that? Because it goes on and it says that life, that life that I'm talking to you about was revealed in chapter 2. It was revealed to us. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says that life was revealed to us and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. That what we've seen, what we heard from the Father that was in the word of life, that was embodied in Jesus, we now give to you that we recognize that Jesus is both God's ideal man and he's man's ideal God. We don't have to wonder about how, who God is. We, because he has revealed himself. He has revealed himself to us. And it's that truth that the believer, that the Christian hangs its hat on. But one of the things that we got to understand is that we don't adjust the light, right? We adjust ourselves in light of the light. The light shines itself and then we 
make adjustments. We make adjustments. Why? Why do, why do we do that? Because truth is grounded in revelation of Christ, not in the fantasies or logic of men. Truth is grounded in the revelation of Christ. Christ has revealed himself. Do you guys understand that, you know, we have, if you've grown up in church or if you heard this, you said the people perish where there's a lack of knowledge or where there's no vision, what? The people perish. But do you understand that a better translation of that word is where there is no divine revelation? You see, God is not telling us that we need to come up with our own stuff and then reveal. Basically, we go to him. And we see how he has revealed himself, and we line ourselves with the creator of the universe. And this is what it talks about. It says that life was revealed. And what we see, we now testify, and we declare. So if it, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, if it's true that the life of the, the scriptures is Christ— he was the light of the world, and the world, the darkness of the world, did not comprehend him or will not comprehend him. It is our job to basically understand and to testify and declare about that light, right? It, but it's not for us to kind of reinvigorate or reinterpret. This is why at the church we say that the gospel is the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the person and work of Christ. It's the gospel that changes people, and God uses people to change the world. We are to behold, we are to experience the gospel, and we are to declare, and we are to proclaim the gospel. There's no new methodology, there's no new technique that we have. And so John basically says we are to wrestle with what has been revealed. Don't get cute with the gospel. Don't get cute with it. Because finally, we recognize, and he ends with this in verse 3 and 4, that truth as the center of partnership. Truth must be the center of partnership, not profitable friendships. This is so critical. Why? After he talks about what has been revealed to us, what has been given to us. Verse 3, it says this, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. There's a certain reverence that we have for the truth, right? And that truth comes with what we, seen, what we sung about a little earlier, that Jesus is at the center of our joy, of our church. And when Jesus starts getting off center is when we begin to fight to get Jesus back at the center. Because all sin, we can trace it back to somewhere where we've stopped believing in Jesus, that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he sees us, right? That he has our best interests. And it's in that that begin, once the, the enemy knows that if, if I can attack the foundation of our trust in Jesus, then I definitely will begin to attack the relationships that we have with one another. So he begins to tackle our disbelief 
our uncertainty that we have in and with the gospel. But he says, no, what you've seen, what you've heard, declare, declare it to yourself, declare it to others. Why? And then there's that word, so that. Whenever you see that word, so that, that is basically, you can put Mark in your Bible, there's a why to it. He's given us the reason why he just made the comments before. So that you may have fellowship, it doesn't say with God. No, it doesn't say that primarily. It says so that you may have fellowship with us. Wait a minute, that, that seems like a curveball. We haven't been talking about fellowship with one another. This whole thing we've been talking about is understanding who God is. But he says, you declare what you have seen, what you have heard. You, Im- you hold on to the person and work of Jesus. Why? So that we may have fellowship with us. There's something about the gospel that unifies. And what we recognize is that the very essence is that Jesus came to reconcile, to bring us together, to make us one, that we are one in Christ. And so what Jesus, um, Paul, picks this up in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What is the good works? Ephesians 2 and 11, that he has torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between husband and wife, between believers in the same church. He's torn it down. But if I, but he gets to that point by laying out Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 that he says, talks about all the blessings that we have in Christ. You see, Paul recognizes, the same way John recognizes, if we don't understand Ephesians 1, about all the blessings, spiritual blessings we have in Christ, we will never get to be able to flesh out Ephesians 2. And as, as a church, as we have allowed division and dissension in the body of Christ to come into our church, it is directly tied to my ability, to your ability, to our ability, our inability to keep or stay focused on the personal work of our Lord and Savior. Jesus, so that you may have fellowship with us. But then he goes and he says, it's not just about having fellowship with us, because he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He says, so the question becomes is how do we navigate this fellowship? Because when we talk about fellowship, we got to understand fellowship is not, you know, when we talk about church picnic. I know a lot of times we talk about food and fellowship and fun, right? So many times we talk about fellowship, like we have to like re-invite Christ back into our fellowship. It's like weird, like to talk about God in our fellowships, you know, what we call fellowship. But that word fellowship comes from the Greek word kononia. And that word basically means to have common union, common union, or to have communion that we have. That word fellowship, that word kononia means that we have partnership that we are partnering with one another. If we were to say that we are going to partner to, for a joint adventure, we would have to clearly define what our partnership is centered around. You see, we have often confused what our partnership is centered around. We think our partnership is centered around you and I's comfort. That's not what our partnership is about. Our partnership, our common union, is centered around the person and work of Jesus. So we keep going back to him because that's the reason why we partner. So when we get off a line, we come back to the center by coming back to the person and work of Jesus. 
both who he is and what he died for. Right? And it's, that is the way, by understanding the person of Christ and understanding our relationship in that way, is the way that we get a chance to navigate the division, the tension that we have. Because many of us have a desire to belong. We want to be a part of something. We want that. A lot of us and many of us have the desire to matter. We want to be a part of something that's greater than ourselves. That's just innate to all humans that we have this sense of it. But you see, that sense, that desire to both belong and matter, it creates this idea that we end up doing things that, we, that are out of character to do that. Do things that we know that we're not meant to do. But when we recognize that it's built on Christianity, it's not about a religion and me giving you a list of ways to do, but it's built on a relationship, we got to first understand our relationship with Christ. And on here, I want to show you guys a diagram. I've showed this before, but oftentimes we don't think about this in the sense of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, right? In this diagram, that we talk about this idea of um, being how we are known, how we know one another and how we know other people, and how we ultimately navigate relationships. On one sense, there's this idea of codependence, codependence. And in codependence, basically, there's this overlap, kind of in the, the circles that overlap one another. You know, in, in, in codependence, our relationships are built with asking with this one question, I am okay if you are okay, right? And that's really what a lot of us break down what codependence is. Codependence is me looking into your eyes and always making sure, are you good? Because I can't be good unless you are good. And I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to make you good. That's codependence. I'm okay if you're okay, right? That's not the type of relationship that we have. That causes us to do things that we don't know to do or to think to do, right? But another way that we engage is not codependence, but it's interdependence. Interdependence is basically this idea that, that we have that I'm okay if I can help you and you can help me. It's kind of like this idea of scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That relationships are built on productivity. That you are as good for me as long as it is profitable for wherever I'm going. But as soon as you lose your profit, then I need to move on. And there's that interdependence. And you see how both codependence and interdependence produces performance. It causes me to reorient. And this is the way we even walk with our relationship with God. The other way that we see is what we see is independence. This is for the hard-hearted person. This is for the person who's been burnt a hundred times. This is for the person that is just like, hey, I'm just good. I'd rather be by myself than dependent on anyone. You see, but that need for belonging and matter hasn't went anywhere. So what we find our ways, what we find our senses is that we end up fantasizing. It's the marriage that's broken. So I just kind of veg on Netflix. It's the relationship that's gone, right? It's the church that's split. So I'll just say, I'm done. I'm not going to be hurt again. All I need is you, God. But the only person to ever walk the earth when it was just him and God, God said, it's not good, Adam. This is not good. 
I've built you for relationship vertically, but I've also built for relationship horizontally. That we are to be known by our love. So independence says, I'm okay if you leave me alone. Codependence, I'm okay if you're okay. Interdependence is, I'm okay if you help me. Code, um, independence is, I'm okay if you leave me alone. You see, but that's not the way that we're talking about when we talk about Christianity is not a religion, but it's relationships. The way we see it and what we see in the personal work of Christ and how we relate to God or how God relates to us, it's by dependence. Dependence. You see, dependence says it this way. Dependence says, I'm okay. Are you okay? You see, dependence says, I am responsible for who I am. Are you responsible for who you are? Dependence is the very essence of what the, the person and work of Jesus says in that Sermon on the Mount. And when he says, hey, some hard times are about to come. And what he, he tells them, I must go away and you can't come. And even though the disciple says, I want to come, I need to come. G Jesus wasn't codependent, but I know that you guys really want to come, so I'm going to let you in. Come on. I don't, I, 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 God let him in. Like, no, he says, you can't come because he wasn't codependent. He wasn't interdependent. He says, you can't come because where I'm going, you can't help me. He wasn't independent. He says, hey, man, just leave me alone. But he was dependent. He says, I will send you another. You see, what Jesus did was he says, listen, let me be God. You be human. You are terrible at being God. You see, and the problem is, is that many of us don't want to embrace our humanity. We want to be superhuman. And so this is the reason why God, even though they was afraid, even though that things were being dividing, even though that tragedy and trauma and all this stuff was taking place, he says, I must go. And even though it will grieve me to see your hurt and your pain and your anguish, I still must go. I'm okay. Will you be okay? You see, and it's in that that he recognized. He says, what we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship, that you may have partnership with us. And our partnership is in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Our partnership is built on him, on a dependent relationship where we are to ask one another, am I, I'm okay, are you okay? Because I can only be the hottie and you can only be who you are. And we are meant to come together and spur one another on to love and good deeds. You know, if we're going to live in that way, we got to recognize that the gospel calls us to both an invitation into relationship, but also a challenge to change. That the gospel says, come and follow me as, you know, but it also, he says, but I will make you fishers of men. In following me, I'm going to challenge you. And in that challenge, there's going to be some uncomfortableness in our challenge. So what am I saying as we conclude is that our fellowship, our fellowship requires and rest upon the personal work of Christ. Our fellowship requires and rest on the person and work of Christ because that's where truth, that's the foundation of all truth. It's based upon a common knowledge of the body that we all accept, a common body of knowledge and a mutual acceptance of the gospel 
and the commitment to hold these truths up. That's what the gospel is. It's an invitation into relationship and it's a challenge to change. And so my prayer for us as we walk into this is that we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about spurring one another on. We're going to talk about challenging one another. But in this spurring and in this challenging, we must never lose our groundedness in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And as this book begins with this, we got to constantly and consistently look back to Jesus. And then that if the problems grow deeper, then somehow we got to fight to look to Jesus. Don't fight simply for your own rights. Fight for the person. Fight for the gospel, for the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And this is why, like I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because as I'm saying that, I recognize that there's some challenges ahead for our church. There's some challenges ahead for the body of Christ as a whole. But I want us to embody the very essence that, that Paul challenged the church in Corinth. He says, love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Church, it endures all things. And that is what love is. John wrote this account to eyewitnesses who are experiencing the potential and possible split and division. And we're going to even talk about people who have left the church in this epistle. He says that this is, this is not about to happen. This is happening in this church. And he says he's talking about he's grieved by it. And that spirit that causes division, that spirit that is stirring things up is the spirit of the Antichrist is what he's going to talk about. So he says, he tells us that we are to fight to be known by our love. And so church, my question is, what are you wondering about? What are you wishing for? What, what are you worried about? Like, what are the things that's keeping you up at night? And my prayer is that we would turn our focus to Jesus. There's something about the name of Jesus that gets everything else in focus. Something about focusing in on him that creates a thing. So, my challenge to you is three things. One, we must be people who cling to the person work of Jesus. Two, we must be people who read the word together in community. God's revelation is not just to you, it's to us. It's to the we. And number three, we must be people who proclaim the word collectively, inviting others into our fellowship. We have to be people that looks to Jesus in God's primary way that he has revealed his word is through the word of God. And we have to be people of the word of God. And we got to be empowered by the spirit in order to do that. It's an invitation to relationship. And it's a challenge for us to change. You see, what I love about the gospel and what I love about the Bible is that he doesn't just leave us there. And what we're going to do is we're going to end right now with communion. Communion is a thing that we take 
for take as believers in Jesus Christ. It is a sign of internally what's going on. It's, it's very similar. It's very similar to baptism. Baptism is basically, it's something that is taking place. It's an outward um, represented symbol of what's taking place, that we died with Christ and we were raised. Communion is when we're going to take both the bread and well, we're going to take crackers and we're going to take juice and we're going to symbolize it for the, the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the ushers, did I say ushers, our greeters, are going to be passed out for those that have named the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would ask that if any of you, if any of you who, who don't name the name Jesus, that you would refrain from taking communion at this time. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, says this. We can start passing them out. He says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he portrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. He says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But he doesn't end there. He, he, he begins and he continues on and he says, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner. What, what does he mean by that right here? I really believe when he talks about an unworthy manner is that this symbol is a symbol of the unity that Christ has brought in his body. And that if there's anybody in here, not only if you're not a believer, but if there's anybody in here that is saying that I'm not searching for unity right now. He says, don't, don't take it. Don't take it. The goal is unity. The goal is that we fight for unity. And he says, if anybody takes this bread in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of our Lord. So he says, as it's being passed on, he says, let, let every person examine, examine themselves. So take some time to reflect on some relationships that need to be healed. Take some time to reflect is this true? Am I fighting to be known by our love? Is that my fight in this season, in this time? Take some time to examine ourselves. And in this way, let him eat and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as we reflect, we're not just thinking about ourselves, but we're also thinking about others in our blueprint family, others that are in the body of Christ. And we're taking this as a symbol of recognition of what's going on, not just individually or internally, but what's going on collectively. And the question that we have is, what is our communion, our common union about? And that if we are to have genuine fellowship, 
It must be built on the personal work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that only comes through submitting and surrendering to him. So as Paul stated, I say to us as a church family, this is the body, a representative, a symbol of the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What he broke for our behalf so that we may have fellowship, so that we may have communion with God. It only came through his sacrifice, through his death, that we have relationship with God. So as believers and as people who are committed to reconciliation, we do this as often in remembrance of him and we eat of the bread. He goes on and says in the same way, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is a symbol of the blood that was spilled on our behalf. Wherever there was sin, all throughout the Bible, blood must be spilled. And this is where Jesus could be both God's ideal man and man's ideal God is by coming in and paying the penalty that you and I deserved so that we will have fellowship with our maker and our creator even though none of us deserved it. It's nothing that we've earned or deserved that we put our confidence. He spilled his blood for us and we do this as often in remembrance of him. He says, for as often as we eat and as often as we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And we are remembering that we are one. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. We're thankful, Lord, that you make us one. Father, I pray, Lord, as we begin to wonder, as we begin to imagine, as we begin to wish for being one, we pray, Father, for your will to be done. Help us, Lord, to be quick to confess our sins, quick to repent, quick to turn to you, quick to turn to one another, Lord, so that we may be one. If there's anything that's in us, any angst, any desire, Father, allow us to take a posture that would honor you. As we honored you by doing this, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's anybody in here, Lord, that can't name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would put their confidence in you. They would transfer their trust and come to a saving knowledge of you. We love you. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.